0: as we look it is to understand to believe in Christ and in his resurrection. When i say faith, we need to understand what that what that faith is or what faith is. While faith isn't absent of facts, faith is believing in something that is impossible and is very difficult to believe in. That being that way, it is not absent of facts or evidence. There is abundance abundance of evidence for our faith. And yet today we're going to see that it is not the evidence that convicts. It is not the evidence that draws our heart to believe Christ. The evidence is there, and it is true, and it can't be denied, and it should compel us But why are so many not compelled, even though the evidence is right in their face? We have today the greatest Savior and the evidence for that Savior, and that evidence is not refuted, and yet millions of people fail to believe. And I would say in a congregation this size, there are many here today that have looked at the evidence and still don't believe. Jesus actually spoke to that group. Today I'm going to call them skeptics. They hear the truth, but they reject it. Jesus spoke to skeptics. Today I would like you to listen to what Jesus has to say to skeptics because this truth and what he says in his argument that addresses them then addresses skeptics today as well. In, in Matthew chapter 22, it is a great chapter because of that fact. Jesus deals over and over again with the skeptic mind. The skeptic says, eh, yeah, heard that, seen that, still don't believe. And Jesus deals with them. Going back with me, well, when when you look at the passage we read today, it says in verse 22, the same day Sadducees came to him. Notice in verse 15, it was the Pharisees that addressed him there. And they addressed him again and again throughout this chapter. But I want you to note it says in the same day. So this this passage is dealing with several events that happened all on this same day. Let's go back, actually, to chapter 21. And I want you to look at something that happens there. In chapter Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Think about that. I think it's rude to interrupt somebody while they're speaking, especially in a public setting where it's not a a, a discourse, it's not not a, a conversation between two people, but one presenting a message to a group. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, they came up to him and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So clearly in public, they challenge Jesus' authority right there in the temple as he was teaching. He does an interesting thing to those who challenge his authority. He gives them a riddle. He gives them a riddle. He says, I want you to hear this riddle and solve it. And if you solve it, I'll tell you the authority that, that brings me to speak. So here's the riddle. Verse 24, Jesus said, I will ask you one question and you tell me the answer. Then I also will then tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? (laughs) That's the essence of the, the riddle or the question that he gave them. You answer this and I'll answer you. Tell me the baptism of John. Was it by God's authority or was John going on his own authority? Notice the conversation they have together. It says, and they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He didn't give them an answer. He gave them a riddle, but not an answer. And the riddle really helped peel, take them out of their hiding, and and reveal who they really were. As is true of most skeptics, they're not honest with themselves. They don't deny the truth because they don't have the information or the evidence isn't clear. That's not it. They deny it because they don't want to believe it. In other words, they choose to reject it. They make a conscious decision I point to my head, I also want to point to my heart, but when I point to either one of them, it's that inner being that rebels against God and says, I don't accept this. This is why they rejected Jesus' authority. Who are you to tell us what to do? You see, if you're going to come to Christ, you're going to recognize you've got to battle with your own inner rebellion against God that says, who is he to tell me? See, it's not a matter of did he live? What, did he die? Did he raise from the dead? We can show and give evidence for all of that. The problem is an inner sin battle that we have against God. And Jesus cut to the heart. He said, you know, see, people act like if I'm a skeptic, if I get all my questions answered, I'll believe. The fact is, two things, you won't get all your questions answered, and secondly, God doesn't even work that way. He doesn't claim to answer all your questions. It's not that he doesn't know don't have the evidence. He, He comes by faith. He demands faith in him. Now, faith is not absent of the evidence, but it takes more than just evidence to bring about faith. It takes the power of God against the human rebellious spirit. That's what we battle with. So Jesus hit it right on the head. So we come into chapter 22, and I want to tell you how he continues to argue against those who reject his authority, and that argument is still valid today. The first, he does eight things. The first one we already saw. He gave them a riddle without giving them an answer. In Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, he also tells them the parable of two sons. Let's look at that real quickly. Matthew 21, verse 28. He tells them the parable of two sons. Now, you can read this for your own, but it's a very simple parable. He says, a man, a father, has two sons. He says to the first son... Go and work in the field. The first son refuses to go and do what his father said. And it says later on he changed his mind and he went and did what the father told him to do. That's the first son. The second son says, okay, father, I'll go. And then he didn't go. And Jesus asks a simple question. Which one did the will of his father? Which one obeyed the father? And, of course, they said, well, hey, it's the the first son. He said, you're right. That's why I point a finger at you. (laughs) He says, the first son is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, when you hear that, you go, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) <laughs> Jesus says the first son is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, in Jesus' day, tax collectors and prostitutes were in the same category. They were people that were, were, did despicable things that society overwhelmingly rejected. Tax collectors uh, put a burden on their own people and stole from them in the name of the Roman government. And prostitutes, we all understand why that is something that should be despised. They despised it then. We ought to now as well. And, And so Jesus says the first group is like that wicked people, except there's a change. He says they did wrong at first, but later on they repented. They changed their mind. Like the first son says, I ain't going. And then he changed his mind. He repented. You know what? My dad told me to do something. I ought to do it. He's my father. He has authority to tell me. And he went back and he did it. And then he said, the second son is like you. He's talking to the chief priests and the elders. They say good stuff, but they never do it. They never do it. In other words, what's difference between the two sons is one repented and the other one never did. The other one act like he ain't got to repent. There's no sin in him for him to have to change. You see, that's where we are when we're sinners. When we don't think that we have to repent, Jesus says, you're the one I'm talking to. You're the one that I'm talking to. He He deals with them in another way. He has another parable for them. Jesus is dealing with the skeptic heart and the skeptic mind. And this is a parable in Matthew 21. It's called the parable of the tenants. And again, it's a very simple parable. Jesus tells a story. Now, you know what a parable was. It was a story um, that was used to explain truth, right? He told, Jesus told the story of a master who plants a vineyard and hires a staff to take care of it. And expecting a harvest from it, like a man who invests in a business, and then when the profits come, he's the owner of that business. He has a right to those profits, right? So Jesus tells a story of this master who hired these tenants to take care of, of this vineyard and to give him the profits. Now, implied in the story is just the way things worked, okay? Okay. In other words, he hired them, he paid them to do a job, and they got their pay from that job, and the profits of the business was the, was the uh, property of the owner, right? So they got their share when they worked, but the profits belonged to the owner. So he sent servants to tell the tenants hey, where's my money? Where's my money? The owner sent servants to say, hey, the owner is asking for his money, his profits. He paid you. You did a job. The job was very profitable. Give him his money. Right? They rejected that. It says they disrespected the servants, so he sent some other servants. And they disrespected them. They disrespected them and... and He finally said, you know what? I'm going to send my son down there. He sent his son to say, hey, where's my money? The master's asking, where's his money? And Jesus asked this question. He said, they disrespected the servants. They disrespected the, the master's son, his very own son. And they killed the son and kept the profits for themselves. Jesus asked this question, what do you think he's going to do with them tenants? And they answered the question. <laughs> Verse 41, I have to read that because you have to hear the words. Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season." <laughs> in our language, he said he'd fired them, right? But he did more than fired them. He fired them and executed them because they killed his son. And he says he's going to take his business, his profits, and give it to somebody else. Jesus makes a conclusion from this parable. The kingdom of God, verse 43, says this conclusion The kingdom of God, therefore, will be taken away from them and given to others. Chew on that a little bit because we're going to see this theme come up in several different um, parables that Jesus is speaking of. And the next one is in Matthew 22, it's the parable of the wedding feast. I want you to see something. There's connection here. Jesus is speaking to the skeptic and he's teaching them something about the kingdom of heaven and what faith is. The first one's about repentance, right? The second one is about these tenets and what the rightful owner expects and demands and how he's going to respond when that expectation isn't met. And the third one is this parable of the wedding feast. In this parable, this is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, in this parable, Jesus tells the story of a king, a king who has a son, and the king decides that he's going to have a wedding feast for his son that's going to get married. So he sends his servants out, to invite a select group of people to this wedding feast. His servants go out and invite all these people, and they refuse to come. They refuse to come. They this is the king. This is the king's son. And the king has invited them to a wedding, and they refuse to come. All right, so what does the king do? He sends out more servants. He sends out more servants to this select group of of invited guests. He sends out more servants. And so they ignore the invitation. They disrespect the messengers who give the invitation. And they end up killing the servants who gave them the invitation. Now, this is Jesus' story. You go like, wow, this is pretty strong. I see a common theme here. What's going on? What's the message, Jesus? Well, the story ain't over. So since his servants have been killed, now the, ki- the king sends out his army. First a servant, right, to invite. Now the army goes in. And it takes those ones who were disrespectful to his servants, who killed his servants, it, he executes them by his army, and he burns their city. This is the story Jesus told. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Jesus told this story. He told it for a reason. Now the story doesn't even end there. He sends out his servants again and says, look, the first group of invited guests weren't worthy. They weren't worthy. And so I want you to go out and I want you to grab folks wherever you can and bring them to my son's wedding feast. I want to fill up that hall. And so these servants go out, and they're searching everywhere, and they're grabbing people. It says good and bad. You can read that in the text. They, they just grabbing almost like indiscriminately, right? Just, hey, y'all, come on in. We got a wedding. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. And he's welcomed. The servants are welcoming all kinds of folks. The first group was a, kind of a select elite people that were invited, and now he's just inviting everybody. So the invitation has gone out, and here comes the wedding feast, and the king is, is, is checking things out at the wedding feast, and he sees a guest there who's not properly dressed. He doesn't have the wedding garments on. And he asks, hey, man, how you get up in here without wedding garment? And here's the key. Look at the man's response. You've been reading ahead, you kind of see it. It says in verse 12, he said to him, that's the king, saying to this invited guest, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? (laughs) And he was speechless. Remember that, we'll get back to that. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. That's kind of drastic, but we understand the point. Whenever Jesus said that, he was talking about not just executing somebody, but he was talking about sending them to eternal judgment. They got the point. And then he says this. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. I'm going to hang there a little bit. I'm going to come right back to that. I want you to think on that a little bit. The next confrontation Jesus has, look at the word, verse 15, then. So you get the sense that this is coming one after another. That's why I'm dealing with the whole thing together. Jesus is dealing with a bunch of skeptics that have seen, let me say it this way, evidence that's impossible to ignore. How do you heal somebody and they want to take you to court for healing somebody on the Sabbath and they cannot deny that you healed them? They ignore that part. He healed. Not only that, he raised people from the dead. I say people because there's more than one person. He raised from the dead. Lazarus was one of them, kind of the climax of it. He healed people. He made things appear out of nowhere. He fed people. He walked on water. He did all kinds of things that no one was able to dispute to this day. The evidence is clear. This same man says, look, you're going to kill me, and in three days I'm going to be raised from the dead. All they had to do to refute that was to kill him and wait. They killed him, And they waited. And on the third day, he raised from the dead. Nobody there refuted that, and no one today should refute it. The evidence is there. The question remains today, why is it not believed? In verse 15 of... Genesis 22, we see this other account, and it's a real simple one. They have a question for Jesus. It happened to be the Pharisees this time. They have a question for Jesus, and the question is a simple one, but we need to know where this is coming from because they're dishonest with this question, and the text lets us know. It says they come with a plot of how to entangle Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this question. It's, just, it, it's, it's a trap for Jesus. The question is simple. Is it lawful for Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. It's a trip question because they asked this because they're hoping that Jesus will slander himself. They're hoping that Jesus will say something. No matter what he says, he's going to be in trouble. Because if he says Jews should not pay taxes to Caesar, then they're gonna take him to Caesar, and Caesar will execute him for failing to respect Caesar and the law. So that's what they were hoping. But the other case is if he, if he sided with Caesar and said, "Yeah, Jews should be obligated to pay taxes." to Caesar, then he knew the Jews would rise up and kill him because he wasn't the kind of leader they were looking for who wouldn't lift the burden of the Roman government off their back. So whichever way he was going to be in trouble with a pretty strong group, Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He says, bring me a coin. Bring me a coin. He looks on the coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they said, well, yeah, Caesar's image is on the coin. And he says this, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If it's got his image on it, give it back to him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in essence, you and I as human beings have God's image implanted or inscribed within us. The Bible says each of us were made in the image of God. He says, therefore, give to God or render What's due to God, his rightful service. And they couldn't, after <laughs> that answer, they couldn't, they couldn't answer back. It says, when they heard the verse 22, they marveled and they left him and went away. He wasn't afraid of the battle, but he says, Caesar is not equal with God. You can give him rightfully what belongs to him, but you're going to give to God what rightfully belongs to God. That's your heart and your soul. Later on in Matthew chapter, the same chapter, chapter 22, they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he points that out. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, let me get to this question of the resurrection, because so many people think that they have questions about the resurrection that if answered, they would believe and they won't believe unless their questions are answered. That's folly. That's nonsense. And Jesus points that out. And so they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection. They say, hey, Jesus. You know what the law says? It says that th- this is a law about levirate ma- uh, uh, marriage, and it says that if a man—thank you for turning that down—if a man has a wife and doesn't have any children, if he dies, then that wife—then his next-in-line brother ought to take her as his wife and raise children. Now, we know that that just sounds kind of crazy in in our way of thinking, uh, but that's not the point. The point was what did the law say and what were they to do? And this is what the law said. And so the the Sadducees came to Jesus with this weird concoction made up. It says a man was married, but he didn't have no children. He died. And then the next brother married his wife, Just like the law said, and then he didn't have no children, and then he died. Then brother number three married his wife, the same woman, and they never had no children, and he died. And all the way to number seven. And you know how crazy that sounds, but this is a story that they came to Jesus with. And they said, Jesus, when he got to number seven, he didn't have no children either. And then he died, and then Jesus, you know what? The wife died. And they all went to heaven. Now who's she going to be married to? That's the question. Who's she going to be married to? You know what the question says? They're saying in their mind that the thought of resurrection is so silly that it can't be true. Because if it was, you can't unscramble this great egg. Notice how Jesus answers their question. Verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. He didn't say, well, you know, I kind of see your point. I feel where you're coming from. He said, you are wrong. And not just in error, but he says this. Because you neither know, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I want to tell you something. That's a stronger statement than saying they're wrong. He it didn't say you just mistaken a little bit. You got your facts a little twisted there. No. He says you don't know what you're supposed to know, or you're supposed to be the expert on. You don't know the, the, what the scriptures say, neither do you understand the power of God. I'm going to tell you something. Skeptics of the resurrection fit in this category. It's not a factual thing that they actually fight with. It's the same thing with most arguments today. An argue about abortion. You want to argue about creation versus evolution? It's not the facts that get in the way of the person who won't accept God. It is that they reject the scriptures and the power of God. They reject the reality or the possibility of the reality. I'll say it just to make them happy. They reject the reality that God, in fact, can do what he says he will do. And he has done what he says he has done. And the evidence cannot refute that. Now, the evidence isn't going to make you a believer, but it cannot refute what is true. It cannot. So Jesus says to them, you don't know what you think you know. And your problem is not the facts. Your problem is God. You do not believe and accept and acknowledge the power of God. Now how do you turn a person like that? You don't. And Jesus doesn't try to. Jesus doesn't say, hey, let me sit down and talk to you and and, and share with you so much evidence that you'll be compelled to believe because you won't believe because it's not the evidence that's in your way. It's the sinful heart of man that is in the way. And so the next question that comes up is what we talked about, the greatest commandment. Verse 34 through 40. They say to Jesus, in essence, they're still sitting in that attitude of ridicule. The law got all this stuff to say, can you sum it down to the greatest commandment? He said, yeah, I can. I can. And he does. And he says this, this is what God requires, that you love him with your whole heart and nothing less and he says the second one proves the first, that if you love God, it will be shown in how you treat each other. So you can't skip or, 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 or get away from either one of those. We have a problem with violence in our communities today. It's because people don't have the love of God, the love for God, therefore don't have the love for each other. That's nothing new. From the first two set of brothers that were existed Cain and Abel, we saw that same type of violence from Cain against Abel because he hated his brother. Why did he hate it? Cuz his brother said mean things to him. No. Cuz his brother was righteous and he wasn't. And he wanted to kill him. It's the heart that is central in this matter. It's why I've chosen to preach God's Word instead of teach in a university somewhere. It's not knowledge that we lack. It really isn't. You got a phone, you can Google anything but your answer is going to come from man instead of God. But if you, know the God, if you know the Bible, you can understand what God is saying enough to live by him and to live for him. Faith is being fully convinced what God said is true. The evidence will support that, but it won't lead you to faith. Skeptics see the same evidence that we see today. So, what are we to say? What about the believer? You need to recognize it's not your superior intellect that led you to believe in Christ or understand the Bible. It didn't. No. It's God. It's God reaching out to you. So, let me go back to that point that I said I was going to get back to where Jesus says, Many are called, but few are chosen. This was the parable of the wedding feast. In these parables, Jesus, in fact, the whole book of Matthew is pointed towards the Jewish nation or the Jewish person, the Jewish mindset. And he's showing that this Jesus has fulfilled the law, and yet he's been rejected by his own brotherhood. Jesus is preaching at the Pharisee and the Jewish mind that would ultimately reject him and send him to the cross. John says it in his gospel this way, he came unto his own and his own people received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, those who would believe on his name. In that parable of the wedding feast, the king represents God. The son who's going to get married is the son of the king, represents Jesus. The servants of the king represents the prophets. He has sent out his prophets throughout all the ages to compel, to invite, to bring in, and to bring in who? Remember when Jesus first sent out prophets, he said, don't go out in the whole world. I want you to he sent his disciples, I want you to go. To the household of Israel. I want you to go to, to this select group of people that I've called my own, and I want you to give them the invitation that I'm inviting them to come once again and to be joined in me. And they rejected and they refused. Not only did they reject and refuse, they killed all the prophets. And then God sent his own son, and they would kill his son as well. But God sent a group of people out to not a select group, but then to a mass, a group of a mass. We call those the Gentiles. He actually sent them out to Jew and Gentile, but now it's opened up to the whole world. And he says, go into the highways, go into the main roads, go where you can find people and give them a the message that I've invited them to a place in my son's wedding feast. And he goes. And many comes, and then there is one who has no garment on, no wedding garment. Now you have to understand the, the the implication is very clear that those who needed a wedding garment will be supplied by the king. The king was rich. He's invited people. The first group showed themselves unworthy because they rejected the invitation. The second group were just totally unworthy. They were a bunch of nobodies who just got by chance. Got invited into the wedding. And so this man steps out from a group of nobodies into the wedding, has the gall not to even come prepared and wear what is appropriate that would have been given him by the king. Let me get down to the point. You know what the garment represents? (laughs) Sunday school answer here. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Jesus! Jesus! or at least his righteousness that he provides by his act on the cross. We can't come to God in our own righteousness. This man is coming in, moseying on in, into the wedding feast, plops down at the front row, sits down, and says, serve me. The king said, who is you? (laughs) You ain't even dressed right. How did you even get in here? In other words, you never deserved it. I can raise my hand, and you can too. But the difference between me and you and that one is what? The blood of Jesus. He says, I will receive what the king offers me so that I will be accepted at the feast. So he says, many are called. Now that's a riddle too. Few are chosen. In fact, he says, many are called. In fact, it's not the many who were called. It's to select few of the many that were called. It's the Jew that was called. It's a select few of all the nations in the world. It was Abraham's nation through his son, uh, Isaac through his son, Jacob and those 12 sons are the sons of Israel. That's select group. In fact, people are fighting today on whether or not they are part of the nation of Israel. He says it's select group of the many that were called But that select group rejected, and God brought in this huge group. And of this huge group, it's a select few that have responded to the invitation and accepted what God provides so that they will be welcome at the feast. It's the garment of righteousness that comes from what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Few have that. Few have that. The skeptic today is the one that says, you know, I I don't buy all that. I don't buy this stuff about resurrection. I don't buy this stuff about God. You would, I would play along with that a little bit if they could say, well, tell me more that I might understand. If you're here because you're saying, tell me more, that I might understand God, is drawing you to himself. And he will tell you all you need to know. And then he will challenge you, like Jesus challenged the first son, to repent. Repent and turn to him. Repent means to stop relying on yourself And respond in a humble way to God's invitation. Knowing that you are not worthy. But God will accept you when you wear the clothing that he has provided. Christ's righteousness, not your own. Nobody at the wedding feast was going to be accepted in their own garment. In their own clothing. And this person was utterly rejected out of this huge group of people that were all invited in when this first select group of people rejected it. This is the gospel to us today. I know Easter Sunday is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is. And it's about his death and it's about his resurrection. And so many today has said, I don't believe in that resurrection. And I want to ask you why. It's certainly not because of the evidence. It's because of a hard, unrepentant heart that has a problem with God. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you every answer you think you want or you ask of me. You don't deserve all the answers. That's not how faith works. But I will give you enough that you need to know. And I provided that in my word. Come to me by faith. Trusting me for who I am and for what I've done. Look at the evidence. Search it. But it's not your intellectual understanding of that that brings you to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit wooing you and moving your heart to be in agreement with God, to agreeing that you yourself are a sinner in need of relationship with the Holy God. And that's only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would prick hearts today, unsettle those who are settled in foolishness, And bring to yourself those who are willing to come humbly before you today and trust in this Savior, your own Son, who you sent to give the message of welcome to yourself that many have rejected and abused, but you have raised up again from the dead. And he is indeed the Savior of all who dare to trust in him by faith. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that in the hearts of people today. spoken to your heart, I pray you to let someone know we can pray with you and welcome you to the family of God. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss us, and before I do that, I want to welcome two candidates or three candidates for membership today who have been reviewed by our church, by our church leaders and accepted by our church leaders and are going to be presented to you right now for your vote. Michael and Melissa, would you come forward? Willa, would you come forward? Leadership team, would you come forward? First thing we need to do is present these one at a time and ask you to vote for them. We present them because we have examined them, they have completed a new membership class, all the requirements there, and our leadership team has examined them, found them to be, have a testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have a willingness to accept our covenant, our constitution, our articles of faith, and want to be active here in their role in Sweet Communion. So let me start with this young man right next to me, is Michael. Um, Praise God, Michael. We are glad to have you here, glad to see you go through and complete the membership. And I present you to the church with my recommendation and recommendation of our leadership team. All in favor who are members of Sweet Communion of receiving Michael as a member, please respond by aye. Any opposed by nay. And so carried. Melissa, Michael's wife, is here as well. Present her with the same recommendation. She has completed a new membership class. And uh, has been reviewed by our leadership team and accepted. So, Melissa, we are glad to have you with your husband, Michael. All in favor of accepting Melissa as a member here at Sweet Communion, please respond by aye. Aye. Any opposed by nay. Praise God. (laughs) (laughs) His hand kind of went up. (laughs) She might have to put a little little extra uh, sauce in that spaghetti tonight. Sister Willa, you have been a blessing to us. I should have Charles stand here with you. Come here, Charles. You, you can stand with him. Charles and Willa were married a few months ago, and um, four months, four months, praise God. they still in love. Isn't that, isn't that something? <laughs> But Willa has, has completed a new membership class. She's been examined by our leadership team, and we overwhelmingly accept her and uh, approve her present her to you as a church. All in favor of accepting Willa as a member here of Sweet Communion, please respond by Aye. And any opposed, by nay. And so Charles didn't say nay either, so amen. <laughs> what we want to do is our leadership team wants to welcome you. I want to be the first one to welcome you. Praise God. Praise God. We are so happy to have each of you. Praise God. (laughs) Love it back. Amen. So what we're going to do, if you would get a chance, get a chance to go ahead and and, and extend the right hand of fellowship to them as we conclude our service today. Stay here. They're going to shake your hand.